0: Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne.
1: Well, it's finally caught up at us. If you are in the Christian tradition or if you just are interested in traditions generally, this coming Wednesday marks... Ash Wednesday in Christian and Catholic churches. It begins the season of Lent Wednesday, March 2nd, ends on Saturday, April the 16th. It's a 40-day season of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and it ends at sundown on Holy Thursday, again in the Christian tradition. It's a fascinating time and It's taken on a particular resonance in our modern self-indulgent age, I feel. Uh, Depending on your age and background, you may remember a time when Lent really meant business I remember from my early childhood in Ireland when we packed in the candy though truthfully it wasn't as plentiful back then as it is now not a lot of sweets going around but there were sweets and others packed in the woodbine and booze and the Guinness and all of that stuff it was plain fish on Fridays that was tough and I don't remember it being dressed up in fancy oils or dressings Lent really meant Lent back then. So I'm delighted to have somebody who is really expert on this. He's the biblical scholar, Scott Hahn, Dr. Scott Hahn, and his new Lenten cookbook is out this month. It's the first ever guidebook for mealtimes in Lent featuring his essays to reflect on the history and culture of Lent from Breads to stews to omelets and desserts. It features the recipes of award winning chef and former Vatican Swiss guard David Geiser, who is returning in this book with 75 new international recipes that were specially conceived for the season of Lent. So, it's a collaboration between Dr. Scott Hahn and former Vatican Swiss guard David Geyser, who is an award-winning chef. I mean, just amazing. Octopus with vegetable puree is one of the recipes featured, but there's an abundance of them with great colour and flavours and... Just do those exotic things, and Dr. Scott Hahn nuances the book with um, a serious and a thoughtful look at what Lent means and how to practice it in a traditional way in a way that's not self indulgent and that will give you some spiritual renewal. My interview with Dr. Hahn covers a lot of ground. I ask him some relevant questions on is the meaning of Lent lost on a lot of people. Is it sort of like an entertainment or sport? And we also got into... Research that has been published by a very fascinating psychiatrist, Dr. Anna Lemke, who was my guest on a show some months ago. Go back and look it up on Dig Life Deep. And she talks about dopamine in her book, Dopamine Nation. And it has to do with the balance or imbalance between pleasure and self-indulgence. And how it can really screw up our brains if we have too much of a good thing and we become addicted to alcohol alcohol, gambling, food, you name it, it just creates, uh, it's created a modern plague, really, and that's what Dopamine Nation is all about. And we get into that a little bit during the interview. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne.
0: You said one other thing I want to really underscore, John, because it isn't just fasting from meat, you know, it isn't just fasting from wine, it isn't just fasting perhaps from smoking. It is fasting from Facebook, the internet, you know, Netflix, all of the other things that just keep those levels of dopamine probably too high Hmm. and reinforce this psychology of luxury that leaves us, in a way, jaded more than joyful. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people.
1: And before we get to my interview with Dr. Scott Hahn, I want to recommend you tune in to a new podcast, Odeon Capital Conversations, with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne, with your host yours truly and it covers all things money and markets our latest episode five was a blast it did a reprise of the first four episodes and it was hugely popular and you can catch it on apple spotify and all the good platforms out there it's called odeon capital conversations And of course, as I record this, the situation in Ukraine is horrible, it's awful, and let's pray for an end to this humanitarian crisis. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the US are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit
0: feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council.
1: My guest is Dr. Scott Hahn. He has a new book out with award-winning chef and former Vatican Swiss guard David Geyser called... The Lenten Cookbook. It's published by Sophia Institute Press. Scott Hahn has written the great essays in the book and David Geyser provides, let me be honest, the mouth-watering recipes. Scott first gave me some background on the book and how it came about. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne.
0: Well, I've been a Catholic now for over 35 years, and I've spoken on a lot of topics related to scripture and also prayer and the mass and so on. So when my good friend uh, called me from Sophia and asked me if I would work with a uh, a chef on putting together a Lenten cookbook, I said, basically, only if you promise that uh, no recipes will come from me. (laughs) <laughs> so we were happy to do that. Okay. And my co-author is David Dicer, who was a Swiss guard with the Vatican. He's also written a couple of other best-selling cookbooks for the Vatican cookbook, as well as Advent and Christmas. And so it was just a great opportunity for me to team up with him. And so uh, over the last year or so, uh, compiling some essays that basically make up the first half of this book, uh, it was an opportunity for me to go back and rediscover so much of what I was reading, studying, and believing, and uh, putting into practice for the first time, oh, back in the mid-80s when I entered the Catholic Church as a former evangelical pastor for whom there was no real Lenten tradition. So, in addition to studying about fasting and prayer and almsgiving, for me, it was also a rich, rich discovery of how these Lenten disciplines go back really to the first century. And so this is what uh, got me on a roll.
1: So, yeah, just go back to that point. The Lenten fast, I always believed, were, was a, a, a Christian tradition across a lot of the Christian churches, but you didn't come from that background with your evangelical leanings.
0: Well, you know, coming from a low-church evangelical Protestant background, I, I, I converted around the age of 14 from a life of juvenile delinquency and crime, and so... Uh, I didn't have much, if anything, in the way of Lent leading up to Easter, Advent leading up to Christmas. We were non-liturgical. We were like your typical non-denominational, independent, evangelical church, and we didn't even identify with Protestantism because, as a matter of historical fact, Lutherans and Presbyterians do retain much of these Lenten or Advent traditions. And so, for me, it was a a long, slow, and painful process. After I became a Presbyterian minister, studying the Scriptures, discovering the Church Fathers, everything just kept coming up Catholic. And so, I made a very difficult decision that amounted to committing professional suicide, leaving my career in the ministry around the age of 30 and pursuing the Catholic faith. But in the process, discovering once again that these lenten traditions that we have in the west with the latins and also in the east with the uh, the greeks this just gives you a certain sense of rhythm throughout the entire year but every year of your life from childhood through adolescence to adulthood. And so we've now raised our six kids. We now have 21 grandkids. And watching our kids raise their kids in terms of these yearly rhythms, in terms of fasting, almsgiving, prayer, and that kind of thing, sort of like, how good can it get? You
1: uh write in your new book, uh, you're the co-author, the Lenten cookbook, about the joy of fasting. I mean, how could fasting be joyful? It's a uh, Kind of. uh, Not how everybody would look at us.
0: No, it's not. You know, a little background might help. I mean, I I start off by sharing the story of a woman named Irma Rombauer, who was St. Louis High Society in the 20s, up until about 1930. And among other wealthy women, she would host these banquets for the elite in the St. Louis High Society. And then, much to her shock, she was widowed in 1930. And so she went on to write a book entitled The Joy of Cooking that became the runaway bestseller of all cookbooks. It sold 18 million. It's in nine different editions. And it basically brought this elite style of cooking and eating cuisine down to the hoi polloi. Ordinary Americans woke up to realize it could be more than beaten potatoes. And so what I also discovered, secondly, was that uh, Saint Benedict in his rule, the rule of Benedict, only uses the term joy once in the rule. And that is when he speaks of the joy of Lent. Again, a rather counterintuitive connection. You'd think that joy comes with Easter only after Lent, but there's a sense in which there is discipline, will, you know, the training of the will through fasting, through prayer, through almsgiving, through spiritual discipline. And of course, as you mentioned, John, this is part of the Christian tradition. It goes back to antiquity, Greek and Latin, East and West, but it's also there in Judaism. It's also Muslims during Ramadan. You also find Hippocrates, the father of medicine, emphasizing how fasting is a kind of interior physician Aristotle proclaimed the importance of fasting to discipline the will, Plato and Socrates as well. So just in terms of moral training to overcome that need for self-gratification, to train ourselves in deferred gratification, but to plug body and soul so that it's more than dieting, to plug in the philosophy with the theology to recognize that we're, we're following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus. You know, it, it just struck me as being the convergence of all of these different aspects, like so many spokes that converge upon the hub of a wheel. Uh, fasting, Lent, all of these things bring discipline, brings uh, a certain regularity to life. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the source of joy. Uh, and what I have found is that, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, if you'd asked your average Catholic you know, what about fasting, almsgiving, discipline, you know, and these things, they were usually associated with the elite, you know, the high society of the Catholic Church, the clergy, the nuns, the monks, and those guys, they were the ones who got down and dirty in those ways, and you know, for us, we were just looking for the loopholes, the shortcuts, and that kind of thing, only in the process of becoming Catholic and growing up in this way, I have found just as I did with martial arts or playing guitar or any other sport, when there's a discipline, there becomes a certain set of habits. And with those habits, you can do more and more good, more and more easily for more and more people. And there really is a sense of self possession. When you practice self denial, it isn't just a stoic discipline. There really is a sense of self possession because you can't give to something, you can't give something to somebody else unless you have control of it. And so, the, the the inner logic of self-giving love begins with self-possession. And that, of course, goes throughout the entire year, throughout the entire lifetime. But every year, Lent is that unique period that goes so far beyond Advent. Advent is also a penitential season of preparation for Christians, but Lent is much more, especially on Ash Wednesday, March 2nd, where you have this principle of fasting, where no meat, one meal, two snacks that don't add up to more than one meal. And from 18 to 59, Catholics, and really even those who are younger than 18 or older than 59, they're invited to participate, but the rest of them are obligated to. And so for me, uh, it is the, the opportunity for ordinary Catholics to get in step with a living tradition that makes us enjoy being Catholics, and it's more than just keeping rules.
1: It seems to me that the whole tradition of fasting and Lent and the practices that were there a generation ago have almost disappeared. A lot has changed. Fasting, when I was growing up, was a lot more severe, as I recall it. Um, There were longer fasts. Now it's what one hour before you go to church on Sunday if you want to receive communion. But back then it was the night before, for example. And it seems to me that the lenten tradition today it's almost i i i'm just wondering how seriously catholics take it because it it's almost like a fun thing on on fridays and not having meat while we'll have pizza i mean let's face it in america there's some beautiful pizzas out there i'm not sure if, if all catholics have, have bought into this the way you're describing uh, fasting and lent
0: no, I think you're right. I think that a large number of Catholics have not bought into this, and a large number of older Catholics are only too happy to be completely out of this. You know, you go back before Vatican II. You know, so in the 50s and early 60s, there was a sort of rigid authoritarian spirit that could be described as legalistic. Certainly, it was a burden. It didn't. It, it, it didn't. It wasn't the source of any joy. Uh, and so in In 1966, one year after Vatican II ended, then Pope Paul VI issued an apostolic constitution, penitimini, and he, he basically called for affirming the tradition of Lent and fasting and Fridays and so on, but he gave it to the bishops and he took away the idea that it could be mortal sin to break these fasts or to just simply ignore the tradition. Well, You know, it's sort of like when you're training adolescents in a very rigid environment, then you send them off to some secular university and say, hey, you know, behave yourselves. Fat chance, you know. And so in the late 60s and into the 70s and really well beyond the 80s and the 90s, you have an entire generation that never internalized the values of a living tradition. You know, if they read scripture, it wasn't for the purpose of figuring out, okay, how can we conform ourselves to Christ, the word incarnate. So if we're going to study the word inspired in the New and the Old Testament, there there are ample number of examples. You know, Moses in Exodus 34. You have Jonah chapter three, the fasting of even the pagans, the Ninevites. And so I would say that it's been a trickle down effect. It's been a slow process where a new generation of Catholics are being raised and they're like, wait a second. Why did you throw all of these traditions out and never even bother explaining to them them to us or even giving us the option of Latin, of Gregorian chant, of fasting, of Lent, of Advent? And so what I'm seeing across the country and also around the world, but especially here in America, is the spiritual awakening. As I mentioned before, John, I, I had been an evangelical and so for over 10 years in ministry, we watched this evangelical awakening take place in the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And then it's kind of come and gone. But what I saw back then, I would say it's taking root much more deeply. Because instead of just having personality cults or pastor-centered churches, you end up having A new generation of Catholics saying, you know what, the secularization, the materialism, the hedonism, you know, it just leaves you jaded, if not addicted. And so the discipline, no pain, no gain isn't just true for Nautilus, weightlifting, and that kind of thing. And for Christians, no cross, no crown. So taking up your cross takes us beyond the rhetoric, the mere doctrine, Catholic talking points. And as people put this into practice together with their family, with other families, they're like, you know what? This is better than just you know Saturday soccer and yeah. things too, and so I see it catching on. Not everywhere, not with everyone, but little by little, gradually, with more and more people. And so, you know, I have been shocked in the last couple of weeks since the Lenten cookbook was released how quickly it's been selling out in lots of places. I spoke at three parishes, and uh, it sold out. the The excitement, the interest, the you know, the demand, as it were, uh, I think has shocked Sophia, our publisher, Charlie McKinney, my good friend, as well as uh, me and David.
1: I mean, you, you have beautiful essays in the book, and it's wonderfully illustrated. And, and I've I got to be frank, the recipes are delicious, <laughs> mouth-watering. But you, you state that in the book that the decline of fasting in wealthy nations has been spiritually disastrous.
0: That's right. No, it has. You know, the rationale that was provided after Vatican II was, hey, look, we had more bishops in Rome for the Second Vatican Council from the Third World than we had from the First World. And in the Third World, fasting from meat on Fridays, they usually don't have meat the other days of the week, or if they do, it's somewhat sporadic. And so, we ought to find something that fits the regions and the cultures better. And so, we'll give it to the bishops, which in the West just became an excuse for doing away with what we regarded as excessive discipline, law, legalism, or whatever. And I just sense that an entire generation of Catholics, in America especially, You know, American Catholics are like nine parts American, one part Catholic. Spiritually, to describe them as flabby, I think would almost be an understatement.
1: The book also has wonderful um, descriptions about all the traditions of of Lent and going through uh, church history. There were Rogation Day fasts and Ember Day fasts and Black fasts. There's just an extraordinary history of fasting within the church.
0: You know, in the East, that tradition has been maintained much more among the Orthodox, although I would say the tendency is mostly with Orthodox monks and monasteries. But in the West, it really has been lost. I, I must admit, when I came into the church, even though I was studying for a PhD in theology and I went on to become a professor, the idea of ember days, rogation days, black fast, dry eating, all of these things were entirely new to me. And only gradually over time, you know, as my wife came into the church four years after I did, as her kids began catching up as well, little by little in terms of, you know, things like the family rosary, things like weekly mass, but then we tried to go to, to daily mass. But we live in a unique town, Steubenville, Ohio. Franciscan University of Steubenville is this evangelical, Catholic, tradismatic, Pentecostal where all of these people from all over the world, especially all 50 states, come together and experience the spiritual life and spiritual disciplines in a way that just builds up communities. And not just among the students and the faculty, but among the community families. We have a number of families that are moving here precisely because we have this flourishing Catholic family subculture, I guess, for lack of a better term. And so little by little, without any legalism, without any authoritarian imposition, you know, Our bishop has asked us throughout the year to sort of recover the Friday discipline, that a Friday is a mini Lent, but especially in Lent, starting with Ash Wednesday, going all the way to Good Friday, uh, where you have this fasting. But, But also, he and others are encouraging us, you know, almsgiving, spiritual reading, increased prayer, going back to confession, attending Mass more often, going down and making a visit To the Blessed Sacrament, doing the stations of the cross, especially on Fridays. Don't try to do it all at once if you haven't been doing anything, but do one thing for a week and then maybe another thing. And what we find is that it catches on, it takes hold. And the kids, if you do it like we have over the years, we have the stations of the cross in our backyard and the kids do it as long as it isn't pouring down rain. And uh, we've had some really great memories. And I think that's what Lent is for, not only building up our hearts but also making memories for our kids and now for our 21 grandkids and, you know, for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, I want to make it so that it doesn't sound like hype because this isn't like religious hyperbole. This is just simply living out what it means to profess the fact that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, and in Christ who went through all of this for us. And so God, in effect, is fathering his family and calling us The stuff that is not meant to kind of restrict us like some sort of spiritual straitjacket, but really give us more joy, more self-control, and to instill those kind of strong habits that we call virtues. To protect her home and family in a disaster, Karen was willing to wade through water, mud, and insurance paperwork.
1: My guest is Dr. Scott Hahn, and he's talking to me about his new Lenten cookbook in collaboration with the award-winning chef and former Vatican Swiss guard David Geyser. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. It's interesting to listen to you describe all this. I spoke to a psychiatrist recently. You, you may be familiar with our writings, Doctor Anna Lemke, and she was talking about how America and the West is drowning in dopamine and you know self-indulgence, too much food, too much alcohol, just a vast sea of wealth, and and people are on unha- a lot of people are unhappy. There's rampant al- alcoholism, there's drug abuse, and, and and people are addicted also to digital media, they're addicted to gambling, let's say. And she recommends to a lot of our clients that they give up their addiction for 30 days, 60 days or whatever. When I think of fasting, I think uh, the church must have had something in mind, giving up something. You come out of it at the end, a stronger person, at least spiritually. So even people uh, from the secular side may see a lot of benefits in this kind of fasting that you're talking about here.
0: I mean, look at the whole industry of dieting. They recognize that a little self-discipline goes a long way and not simply to fit into a bathing suit this summer that makes you look better, Mm -hmm. but you just feel better you not only feel better physically but mentally emotionally and and so you know supernatural grace builds on human nature and so if it's true of human nature you take it up a level when it comes to living out the uh, the life of the church following in the footsteps of Christ and discovering that you know it used to be from the top down imposed by rules and authority and i must admit sometimes i wish that we had stronger leadership. Sometimes it almost feels as though we live in a society that is virtually leaderless and maybe even in a church as well. But it gives us the opportunity to do it from the ground up, from below, you know, with individuals, with marriage, with family, with neighborhoods, with parishes. And I, I have to say, you know, ultimately, it's digging a tunnel from both sides. So there ought to be a renewal of that kind of authority that leads people through education and discipline to appreciate this faith that is 2,000 years old. But at the same time, we don't have to wait until it's imposed by rules and a authority to discover the fact that a little bit goes a long way. Self-control, self-denial, deferred gratification leads to greater self-control, greater self-discipline, and a greater capacity to give myself to my family, my students, to my grandkids, and to others as well. And this is not like, oh, wow, he's a saint. No, I'm a human. I'm a sinner. I go to confession once a week, and even though Kimberly doesn't know what I confess, she never suggests I go too frequently. And (laughs) my kids haven't either, you know. But you said one other thing I want to really underscore, John, because it isn't just fasting from meat, you know, it isn't just fasting from wine, it isn't just fasting, perhaps from smoking, it is fasting from Facebook, the internet, you know, Netflix, all of the other things that just keep those levels of dopamine probably too high, Hmm. and reinforce this psychology of luxury that leaves us, in a way, jaded more than joyful. And so, you know, when you recognize that um, the imitation of Christ, following in his footsteps, it might not give you cheap thrills, but it does give you deep joy. And it isn't like, well, I'm going to just do this so I feel instant joy. No, I have found that um, through sorrow, through discipline, through sacrifice comes that joy. And I remember seeing my mother dying from stage four bone cancer, but her prayer, her reading of scripture led her to a joy that was greater than anything I remember, you know, seeing in her. So it's like a school of suffering. It's like the science of suffering that leads us to a holiness that doesn't put us up on a pedestal like a statue. It just makes us realize that being ruggedly human through Lent, all the way through life to the point of death, this is like, you know, join the human race, join the Christian church. This is what it means.
1: You mentioned there on church leadership, are you referring to the bishops or, or Pope Francis or generally?
0: I mention it generally because I want to keep it at the generic level. <laughs> I, I, these, these bishops, these priests, the clergy, they've heard my confession. They know I have my faults and failings, so I'm in no place to point my fingers, you know. But I know that in my family, when I get so caught up and just finance or administration or whatever you know my kids suffered over the years and so i would have to really invest myself in frisbee or playing catch or just watching you know a movie together or going for a walk and i do think that church leadership has become so bureaucratized so Mm. administrative that there really has no i have one of our we got six kids five sons one daughter and our, our fourth is Father Jeremiah. He was ordained last year for the Diocese of Steubenville. And I, I see in him that kind of joy that comes with the sacrifice of consecrated celibacy and all of the other things. Uh, but I also recognize that, you know, in our diocese, but especially throughout the country, Uh, you're dealing with leadership that is mostly administrative, bureaucratic. It isn't real spiritual fatherhood. Mm. And what gives Father Jeremiah, I think, the deepest satisfaction is feeling like he is a father in his own parish, you know, and uh, not just hearing confessions and not just celebrating the the Eucharist, but just through friendship and spiritual direction. Um, And I think more and more priests forming friendship, fraternity, but also discovering this kind of sacramental fatherhood, you know, this is what we need again from the ground up with those younger men who might be under fifty. But I wouldn't mind seeing it more and more among our bishops too, who really are the fathers of the fathers. And we are blessed with a good bishop here in our diocese. And so I, I thank God for Bishop Montfortin. But I'm also aware of the fact that uh, there are lots of places where people don't have that kind of clear-headed leadership.
1: It seems to me that a lot of uh, priests and parishes are weighed down by bureaucracy, administration, fundraising, and I don't know if it, it just happened that way. It's a good point you make, and it, it's not what you would expect of a thriving church church.
0: Right. And it might be the result of, you know, the kind of clericalism we had for almost a century where they basically do everything. They know everything. And so, you know, the lay are just kind of to there to, to pray, pay, and obey, as they used to say. Hmm. Now I see younger priests recognizing, hey, look, I've got a layperson in my parish who's a, a professional accountant. Why not have him help with the books or plant management? And so, it's an opportunity for lay people to be apostles out in the world but also to make it so that the priest can do things besides just middle management
1: i have a question here from uh, back to to lent and your lenten book and fasting from cj doyle he's executive director of the catholic action league of massachusetts and here's this question: Given the confusion about and general abandonment of the traditional Catholic penitential practices of fast and abstinence, might it be simpler and clearer for the Church to just restore year-round Friday abstinence? Yeah,
0: you know, that's what our Bishop has done, and I think that's what more and more people are waking up to. And I would I would certainly endorse that. That's not primarily what my book here uh, is is addressing, but at the same time. If you read the Latin cookbook and you understand the essays, you would say that is just a, a, an obvious extension of the inner logic of discipline, and it's probably going to be the only path back to renewal for the next generation of Catholics. I must admit that I travel a lot, and I've taught several thousand students over the last 35 years, and I would say that the Catholic Church in America is a sleeping giant, and it's waking up. In stages, in certain places more than others, but just by again, a little bit goes a long way. Friday abstinence, you know, having fish fries for your parish, having families gather, you know, in the backyard for that kind of thing. Uh, Our culture is so toxic, woke, cancel, whatever you want to call it. You know, the the best way to dispel that kind of darkness is to find a switch and turn on a light.
1: In some parts of the world, they already have they have that Friday abstinence year-round, and there's been no pushback. I mean, it's it's widely practiced.
0: That's right. In several parts of Asia and Africa. In fact, there's this coincidence where you have greater spiritual disciplines practiced throughout the year, especially on Fridays, Lent, and Advent. You also have to, uh, you have to recognize that, huh, they seem to be more joyful and more contagious in spreading their faith to others as well.
1: As we come into Lent, what is the law of the church in terms of what Catholics should know? What Can you just walk us through that uh, in terms of fasting and what are the regulations?
0: Yeah, so specifically with regard to Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, those are the two days of real fasting. And so what does it mean? No meat. It also means one meal minimum. You can have two snacks that don't add up to one meal. Uh, But on the other hand, you also have the other Fridays in Lent where you basically have to practice that same kind of abstinence. It isn't the same kind of fasting so that it's only one meal. Uh, It doesn't mean that you have to eat fish because in the traditional, what I've discovered is that you gave up flesh meat. You also gave up fish. You gave up wine. You gave up oil. You even gave up eggs and dairy. Uh, I'm not saying we have to go there, but I would say, you know, just as you add a weight to your lifting, you know, when you're getting in shape, if you've, if you become accustomed to Ash Wednesday, Good Friday and Fridays and Lent, you know, maybe one more thing, alcohol, the internet, give up a little bit more and you're probably going to get a whole lot more grace as a result.
1: So your book is selling well. It's uh, available from Sofia Institute Press. You can get it there on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. I've just went through it. I mean, it's again, it's beautifully illustrated. There's your essays are wonderful, and there's great recipes. I'm just looking at cream of corn soup, baked semolina. The chef that came up with all of these, he did some fantastic work. Um, what other recipes are in it that maybe people might like to sample?
0: Well, I'll be honest. I am a foreigner when it comes to leek quiche, you know, (laughs) uh, and U.S. style flatbread. I have three or four pages uh, dog-eared for my wife to try because she loves quiche and she wants to do some flatbread. But I leave most of the cooking to her and she leaves (laughs) most of the theology to me.
1: And those fish dishes in it. Oh, yeah. Very good. I'm going to pick it up and uh, we're going to try those, uh, some of those beautiful recipes and read your essays again during Lent. Uh, Dr. Hahn, thank you for coming on my show.
0: John, it's been a great time. And I want to also thank David Geister and my friend, Charlie McKinney, who's the head of Sophia, who invited me to do this with my co-author, David. And so I, I hope it does a lot of people a lot of good. Everybody should go out and buy it. Yeah, that's right. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973-529-4699. 973-529-4699. Email com. at gmail.com. That's burndesk B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com desk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.